guys can be seated. You're already doing it before I tell you. That's perfect. You know the drill. Man, we are, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. I don't know if you are or not. I was about to speak on your behalf, and I shouldn't do that, but, but I'm glad to be here. Uh, last week was fun. Like, I don't know if you were here last week or not, but last week we got to celebrate baptism um, and to see, like, there were a couple people that commented, like, you baptized the biggest and the smallest on the same day. Like, Dixon Pope, big dude, big dude, and, and he took up that whole pool, but then, man, sweet little Sadie Claire you know, got to, to see her be baptized too. It was a lot of fun, and like we got to celebrate in that, and it was a ton of fun. If you missed it, I can't do anything about you seeing that. Uh, you can go and look at pictures, but you can go back and listen to um, what we talked about last week too, because we kind of took a day to talk about the vision um, of why we do community groups and how we do them and what we do in them, and, and it was good. It was just fun, and community groups did launch last week. We take the break for summer, and it's always kind of an itch when they start back. Everybody's about ready. It's kind of that absence makes the heart grow fonder kind of a deal. If you didn't get to make it, I have good news. They're, they're happening this week too. So, like, you know, if somebody happens to show up 24 hours late, that's okay. This week, you can rectify that. Or if somebody calls, say, we completely forgot about it, that happens too. It's all right. They will all be going this week. Um, and so be sure to, to hop in. And like we said last week, give us some patience because they're, most of them will be kind of full. Um, and we're working on, you know, having alternate locations and replicating those, branching those, growing those, multiplying those, whatever language you choose to use, we're, we're going to do that as quickly as possible. So show up, be there, participate. I will make this statement, and I didn't get to make it last week. If you consider yourself part of the Origins family, what we do and how we do it and why we do it, and you're going to be in those community groups, if you miss a Sunday, it is incredibly important for you to hop on Spotify, Apple Music, our website, whatever, and listen to the message from that week. We're not trying to get likes or follows or anything, but we are going to do sermon recap pretty much the, you know, this entire year. And so if you didn't hear the message on Sunday, you aren't going to be able to participate very well in community groups. So make sure you go and listen to it, you know, on your drive back and forth to work or on your walk in the morning, whatever, you, however you choose to do that, just take a listen um, and make sure you're caught up. So uh, this week, we're back in the book of Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. It will be on the screen. Uh, we also have Bibles in the back if you ever need to grab one of those. You can take it, write your name in it, keep it, do whatever you want with it, as long as you read it. Um, let me pray, and then we're going we're gonna to go. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for your word. Uh, God, thank you so much for, for God being the central character of this book that we hold so dear. Um, and God, through him, we get to see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the way that each of those interact with us uh, and draw us closer to a place in which we look more like Jesus in the church you desire us to be. Uh, God, today as we look at your word, I pray that it speaks louder than our doubt. I pray that it speaks louder than our fears. Um, I pray that it speaks louder than our misunderstandings. And God, you use it to shape us and make us um, and to sanctify us. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So today, uh, the particular passage we're going to look at kind of serves as a bookend for the last portion of Scripture that we have been reading. Um, a couple chapters ago, which was probably like four to five weeks ago, we read of Jesus' first kind of verbatim passion prediction. And by passion prediction, we just mean when he's telling his disciples and those others that are looking and listening uh, what's about to happen. And, and he just kind of lays it out. And it's interesting that at the tail end of each one of these predictions, there were three or three and a quarter. I call it three and a quarter because we see three that were very clear. We see one that was a little more kind of under the radar in which he was coming down the mountain with three, three of his disciples. Um, but after each one of these, he, he makes a prediction, but then the disciples just apparently miss it entirely. 
And he has to spend time teaching them and bringing them back to what he just said and reminding them of like the point of all of this, the reason behind all of this, and the character or the person in history who's going to accomplish it, that being him. Today is no different. Uh, today is, his, is kind of his final passion prediction as he is literally marching towards Jerusalem uh, to hang on a cross, die, on, die for our sins, and kick death in the teeth and walk out of the grave. Praise this Lord. Like, that's, that's good. And so today closes out that chapter. And so already emotional, so we know it's going to be good. And uh, that's not a judge of anything, but that's just who I am. So uh, we're going to start chapter 10, verses 30 through 32 through 35. We're going to read the first three verses and talk about those a little bit and then uh, kind of walk through the rest. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. If not, just, just follow along. So in verse 32, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, or look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, they will spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, or on the third day, he will rise. And so this is that third passion prediction in this big chunk, and he's basically telling them in greater detail than he has before this is what's about to happen. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, like that prepositional phrase. Uh, it literally means they're climbing like up in elevation, but also they're going to the holy city. So anytime someone would go on a pilgrimage or go on a journey to Jerusalem, they would say, we're going up for those two reasons. They're climbing, but at the same time, they're going to a holy place in which the temple was and they worshiped. And, and a couple interesting things that we see here, Jesus adopts a different place in the walking order than we normally see. Traditionally, when a rabbi is walking with his disciples, because all rabbis generally had disciples, he would walk amongst them. He would kind of walk in the middle of them because they would teach while they were walking. You know, it would go all the way back to uh, early in Scripture where it says, teach your kids these things while you walk on the way, while you do these types of things. Rabbis took that to mean very literally while they walked along the way they taught. But in this particular place, when they're going up to Jerusalem, we see Jesus leading them, walking in front of them, almost like he's like, hurry up. We need to get to a place and follow me. And so they're walking up to Jerusalem, Jesus leading the way. Um, and so in this, like there's the 12 that are following him, but it's very likely that there are others in this crowd too. They could have been on a journey. They could have been just taking the popular road, or they could have been those, those general disciples in which they were following, waiting for him to say something, do something. They were curious. They had stuck around this long. But either way, it says amongst the crowd, there were two different reactions. Some were amazed... Some were afraid. Some were amazed. Some were afraid. Neither reaction's wrong. Like if they had been paying attention to the things that Jesus had done, the things that Jesus had said, and even their misconceptions about what was to come, they could be either or, or both. Amazed and afraid. Amazed at the things that he had done, the things that he had said, uh, the, the way in which he had handled life at this point, the way in which he had loved radically, healed completely, taught with authority that he shouldn't have. Yes, you look at him and kind of jaw drop amazement like, oh my goodness, who is this guy? And, it, and at every turn, he had to address that with the disciples. Hey, disciples, you need to know who I am. But for the rest of the people, he may not have been able to address them specifically. So they're still just like, this is crazy. But for the other rest of the crowd, and maybe the disciples too, they were also afraid. They were afraid for a couple of reasons. Number one, 
Maybe they didn't know what he was going to do next, but also, number two, they were still trying to figure out uh, what this Messiah, what this deliverer was actually going to do and what kingdom was going to be brought forth and what it was going to look like. And what we even see with the disciples as we go a little further, there was still a great misconception about what was to come. They still didn't exactly know what type of change, what type of kingdom was about to come in and how that was going to happen. They were still, uh, a lot of commentators would say that they were still a bit dull. Not dull as in boring, but dull, they weren't quite sharp, and they weren't quite catching it. Now, we could go into a lot of reasons that that's the case, but we do see it over and over, and this example today will be pretty clear that they weren't quite there yet. So he does give a little more detail, and he says, look, we are going up to Jerusalem. I'm walking ahead of you. Follow along. And he says, the Son of Man, kind of a Daniel, Davidic, prophetic kind of an idea. He said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, our ruling people amongst the Jews. And he says, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, in this case, the Romans. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And in Mark's language, after three days, which is still completely justifiable with Jewish terminology, in Matthew and Luke, they say on the third day, both completely agreeable, even though they sound different. We can meet for coffee, talk to you about all the minutiae of those details. Either way, he's saying, look, it's about to happen. We're walking up to the place. Uh, the Son of Man, that's me. I'm going to be beat. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be found guilty, even though I'm not. And it's going to happen at the hands of our own people. And then I'm going to be handed over to the people that are not our people. And they're going to spit on me. They're going to beat me. They are going to kill me. But on the third day, I'll be back. Now, granted, he didn't speak in terms quite that clear. Okay? But still, he had said it repeatedly. He had said it repeatedly. He had told them in no uncertain terms this was coming. But yet the disciples were still a bit dull. And now, granted, we can, we can do one of two things with that. Like, this has nothing to do with our overall application for the day. But one, we can say, you silly disciples, you. We can do that, or we can try to put ourselves in their sandals and realize that we would have probably been in a pretty similar dull spot. Like, because understand, like, everything that they had heard about this deliverer that was to come, like, it was good language, but it was prophetic language, and prophetic language is usually not super, super detailed until you see it happen. Like a lot of the, the, the language that we have prophecy-wise about the end times, like it's, it's really confusing. And I do think it's written there so that when we will see it, we will recognize it. Similar idea for this type of prophecy, like the Son of Man will be handed over. He will be delivered. They're like, how is he going to be delivered? You know, what does that look like? And, and what do you mean? You know, all of these things I don't understand. But when they saw it, I'm sure these prophecies, it kind of went off. And they're like, oh, all of that makes sense now. Oh, and the thing that you said about the temple, rebuilding that in three days. Oh, you were talking about yourself. Oh, I get it. But in the moment, we would have probably been all a bit dull. Again, not boring, just slow to understand. We've all, we've all been, maybe you haven't been there. Maybe you're the sharpest tax in the box. But me, on the other hand, I have a tendency to be quite dull. Just ask my wife. And so either way, he gives all this prophecy. Then on the very tail end of that, what we would expect, what we would hope for non-dull disciples is a great bit of dialogue about what Jesus said, right? That's what we would hope for. We would hope for them to say, hey, I want to know more details. Tell me more. Can you fill me in on that? I'm going to treat you like Google. I've got a lot of questions. Not what we see. So then in verse 35, this is also paralleled in Matthew 20. Luke doesn't include this portion. He did uh, about the passion prediction, but this one is not in Luke, but we do find it in Matthew 20. And it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
in the book of Matthew, Matthew's recording it that apparently they put their mother up to it because they were the sons of Zebedee. They had the same dad, same mom, and apparently they put their mom up to it. But either way, same question. Now, wow, putting their mom up anyway. Wow, way to go, James and John. So they, they basically the same thing is, hey, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. So before we even tell you what it is, we want you to agree. Now, granted, you just told us all these things are about to happen, so it probably has something to do with that, right? Maybe not. So let me read through the rest of this text, and we'll come through and talk about it. Verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory, or in Matthew's words, in your kingdom. Jesus said to him, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, or the remaining disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. That indignant is a great word that just means they're mad, they're ticked. And Jesus called them and said to him, said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pivotal verse in the book of Mark probably the central verse in the book of Mark. We find it in in verse 45. And it was probably uh, kind of a combination of some very Daniel ideas and some Isaiah prophecy, son of man, and also being a servant and dying as one, dying as a ransom for many, kind of a combination of two terms, two ideas, both prophetic. But either way, on the tail end of Jesus talking about the fact that the son of man is about to be handed over, he's about to be uh, tried, convicted of something he did not do, and he was about to be beaten, he was about to be spit on, he was about to be mocked, and then he would be killed, and then he would conquer death. On the tail end of that, we find the sons of thunder, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they're asking Jesus an important question to them at the moment. This important question for them at the moment reveals a couple things. Number one, it reveals that they really do not know what they're about to be delivered from. It reveals that these disciples, yes, they're great, and God's going to do amazing things through them, and Jesus is the voice of God to them, walking with them, talking to them, leading them, pushing them, grooming them, cultivating them, discipling them, but at the moment, they're a bit dull, they're a bit slow to understand. It reveals that they had no idea, really, what they were about to be delivered from. They called Jesus the deliverer. They called Jesus the one that they had been waiting for. They, they called Jesus all those things. They called him the Christ, yet they didn't know what he was the Christ of yet. Yet. They didn't know what they were being delivered from, too. It also shows that they really didn't understand who was about to be delivered, who all was about to be delivered. Third, they really didn't understand the terms of what salvation meant. By terms, I mean like the length and the breadth of terms of salvation. But overall, it showed that they didn't understand the type of kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. They didn't understand the type of kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. So James and John, they, they say, we have a favor. And before we even ask of it, we, 
We ask that you do it. Now, nobody's going to do that, number one. Like, nobody's going to be like, hey, you know what? Okay. I don't even know what it is, but I'm going to give it to you. So Jesus, being the good teacher, he's like, well, you should probably tell me what that is first. Tell me what that is first. And they, they basically said, we, we want to sit on your right and we want to sit on your left. Grant us that. Grant us that. Let us sit on your right and on your left. Now, in some circles, like sitting on the right was the most revered position. Sitting on your left was a disgraceful position. But in this case, they were like, we want to be the most important people in the room other than you. So at this point, the disciples, again, confused about the type of kingdom that was coming, they still thought, they still thought, even in spite of what they had heard, in spite of what they had seen, they knew that Jesus was the Christ. They just didn't know exactly that what he was the Christ of. They still thought that he was about to bring about a political revolution. A political revolution. And they said, in your glory or in your kingdom, we want to sit on your right. We want to sit on your left. One chair, two chairs, one brother, two brothers. We want to sit there in your coming kingdom. So whatever it looks like for you to conquer those who are conquering us, uh, when it's said and done, even if it costs you your life, we want to be at your right and we want to be at your left. We want to rule in that kingdom. They didn't understand what the kingdom was. They didn't understand what kingdom come was going to look like. They didn't understand what they were being delivered from at this point. They still thought they were being delivered from an oppressive Roman uh, society and government. They, they didn't understand what they were being delivered from was the wages of sin. They were still missing it. So they said, let us sit on your right. Let us sit on your left. Grant us that. Now, now Jesus, far more patient than me. Like we see that in these three passion predictions. Because in each one of those, Matthew would have responded completely different. Like in the very first one, the very first one, when Peter's like, uh, no, 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 you can't die. Not going to happen. Not going to let it happen. He's like, get behind me, Satan. Pretty strong language. I would have responded really, really different. I would have been like, Peter, you are an idiot. Shut up. And that's something we don't say in our house. But that's probably what I would have said in the moment. Jesus didn't. No, no, no. Jesus took the moment to say, look, got to happen. Peter, right now you're talking like the world, not like the kingdom. And, and he was good. He was loving. He was kind. But he was firm. I would just be mad. And in the second occurrence, the second occurrence, he gives a passion prediction. And as soon as he does, they start arguing, which one of us is the greatest? Like, who's the best? Like, that's what they start doing. Again, Jesus, very loving, very kind, very compassionate, very much like the good shepherd. Me, on the other hand, I would have been like a hired hand, and I would have, man, if I would have had a rubber hose... You know, that's a Christmas vacation reference. But anyway, you'll pick, pick up on that in November after Thanksgiving because we can't watch Christmas movies until then. But either way, and watch the TBS version. There's some pretty rough language in there, and I often forget about that when I recommend that movie. But either way, I would have responded very differently. I know, that's a squirrel tangent. I apologize for that. Not in my notes. I should never leave my notes. And in this case, and in this case, he predicts it again, predicts it well, predicts it in detail in James John. They're like, we want to be on your right, we want to be on your left. They didn't understand the kingdom that was to come. They didn't understand what they were being delivered from. They didn't understand who was being delivered. And they didn't understand what that kingdom would really look like. And he taught them by asking them a question. He said, uh, boys, James and John, can you drink the cup that's about to come my way? Can you bear the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Can you do that? Because basically what he was saying in that in very uh, colorful language for them, kind of odd language for us, we're like, what's in the cup? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I can. Cup, not, not what they drank. Cup being metaphor for wrath that was about to be just poured out on him. 
the wrath that would be necessary to satisfy God and his holy righteousness and to atone for all the sins of all mankind at all times in all places that would be on Jesus. And there was a certain amount of wrath, which would be all the wrath, which would be poured out on Jesus shortly from here. He said, can you bear that? Or can you be baptized with the baptism that you're about to see me be baptized with? uses it three times. Baptizo, in this sense, literally just means to be washed over. Not in the sense of the baptism that we saw last week as a, as a place of identifying with the risen Jesus and also doing it out of obedience and doing it in faith. Not that type of baptism, but baptizo in just the Greek sense of to be washed over. He's like, look, the wrath is about to be poured over me in such a way that I am just going to be a wash in pain, in death in agony. Can you do that? Because you guys do not understand what you're asking for. And they said, well, sure. Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. Now, they couldn't. That could be poured on them. They could endure that, but it wouldn't yield the same result. And so he told them, he was like, well, you are going to endure a cup, and you are going to endure a baptism. James was the first disciple that was martyred. Lost his head at the hands of another Agrippa. First one that we see. John, John was deep fried. It says boiling oil, but we know what that is. Like we've fried wings enough. Hopefully you have. If you haven't, you're missing out. But it says that John was deep fried and somehow walked away. And then he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which Revelation, we, we read while he was there, God revealed that to him. But he said, yeah, there's a cup coming for you. Don't misunderstand. It's not the same one. And there's a baptism coming for you too, but it's not the same one. So you, you think you can endure it. Boys, you don't understand what you're asking for. But it's coming. It's coming. So James, Acts chapter 12, we can read about that. 44 AD, John, deep fried, banished, all of those things. And also they... They didn't understand that the seats were not what they thought they were. The seats were not what they thought. They were still thinking in a very earthly kingdom mindset. Now, granted, like, not a lot of great consensus about the seats in, in glory, like the ultimate glory, like Jesus in glory. Like, not a lot of popular consensus. Like, we can make a lot of conjecture, but we don't know. Here's what we do know based on Jesus' statement. He says, but to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared, prepared by God the Father, before the foundations of time, he's like, you need to understand the kingdom is not what you think it is. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand what's coming. I'm trying to tell you, but you've got to understand it's different. It's different. When we begin to take the works, the life, the actions, the death and resurrection of Jesus and began to try to put them in completely human terms, we miss it. Because these are not human terms. These are not human functions. This is not human atonement that we're talking before. This is not human kingdom that we're talking about. This is God-sized atonement. This is God-sized kingdom. This is God-sized work. This is God-sized action. This is God-sized redemption. This is His. The disciples were dull and they were missing it. And to be honest, we're not completely unlike the disciples. We still, as much as we want to celebrate the kingdom of God, 
somehow in our broken fleshly state, that war that exists, like Paul talks about in the early parts of Romans, that war that exists, eventually we always drift back to my kingdom, the edifice that I built. When in reality, Jesus is like, no, 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 you got to understand, it's completely other than, completely different, completely out of the realm of human possibility, what I'm bringing in. The deliverance that I offer, it's not about earthly oppression. The deliverance that I offer is not about just one people. The deliverance that I offer is not about just a select period of time. The deliverance that I offer is not about a human kingdom at all. It's otherworldly, unimaginable, completely other than. We talk about it a lot, that God's economy and our economy, completely different. And we're not just talking about pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, dollars. We're not just talking about that, but everything that God does in the terms of value, in the terms of appreciation, in the terms of appropriation, all of them, they're completely different. He's trying to get that point across to the disciples. He's like, boys, you don't know what you're asking for. The kingdom is completely different than what you think. But the Jewish people, they were waiting for political deliverance. They were hoping for political deliverance. They were hoping for a, a leader that would come and lead them out of this. And Jesus was trying to tell them, it's so much bigger than you. <laughs> it's so much bigger than the Romans. It's so much bigger. So much bigger. So he continues. Seats are not what you think. And then the other disciples, they get upset. They get upset. They don't get upset at the nature of the question. They get upset that they didn't ask the question, most likely. Because they were all dull. Don't get me wrong. They were all suffering from the same disease, dullness. They got upset. They got indignant, hurt at a deep level, not because James and John were asking the question, but most likely because they didn't get to ask the question first. James and John may have been even a little bit tricky about it, like putting their mother up to it. Hey, Mom, come here. Go ask Jesus for us. See what he's going to say. Maybe they were a little tricky. I don't know. But either way, the other ten, they got upset. They got upset. Jesus had two options here. Again, Matthew option. Boys, I'm going to wear you out. We're going to the woodshed. That, that's what I would have done. Like, that's, that would have been my response, because I'm like, I've told you, you've seen it, we've talked, we've had great discussions, we've been by the campfire, we've been on the road, lots of great parables, lots of great healings, authority I shouldn't have, and you still don't get it. Like, he could have done that. He could have done that. But he didn't. He didn't. The disciples were following him, many others were following him, and he took this moment right here, and it says, uh, and he, Jesus called them to him, and then he said to them, he pulled the twelve aside out of the traveling caravan. He said, let's talk. Let's talk. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles or the rest of the world lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Again, he's like, the world as you know it is not the kingdom that I'm bringing in. And this is the thing, like, we, it just keeps coming up over and over and over. We have to begin to reorient our brains, reorient our minds, reorient our hearts and our souls around the idea that the kingdom of God is not like our kingdoms. It is not. And he gives them a beautiful example right after James and John are like, look, in your new kingdom, that's going to be taken by might. We want to sit on your right. We want to sit on your left. We want to be exalted. He said, look, let me point out to you 
Let me point out to you, the rest of the world, you see what those in authority do. He, he says the Gentiles in this case, but the Gentiles that they knew of were the Romans at this time. He says, you know the Romans, you've watched them, you've seen them. You know that those in authority, what they do is they keep their thumbs on those that are under them. They lord it over them. They always hold over their head that we are better than you. We are greater than you. We are leading you. He says, you see that. You've witnessed that. You've lived that. You've felt that every day of your life. He said, you see that. In this kingdom to come, it will not be so among you. And by the way, like it's interesting the, the way, the syntax in this particular place. He's not giving them a commandment. He's giving them an indicator of what the kingdom is going to look like. He says, in this kingdom that I'm bringing in, it's not going to work that way. It's not going to work that way. It's not going to work the way in which you've seen it done, the way in which you've lived, the way in which you're used to. This kingdom is different. Again, kingdom very, very different. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. And then he begins to clarify. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The first thing that we do with this, because this is the application, exactly what Jesus has said. The very first thing that we need to see and we need to understand and we actually need to taste and devour is we can't let the world define our greatness. We can't let the world define our greatness. Because the world is going to define our greatness about who's under you, whose authority is, is, are, they, is, are, are people following? Who are you getting to control? Who are you getting to lord it over? He said, These are, this is what you've seen. This is what you've seen. This is what you've experienced. This is what you've felt. Same reason that he said if someone asks you to go a mile, you go too. Same thing. Romans would do this all the time. Roman soldiers. This, but this idea is like, look, this type of authority that you've seen, it must not be so among you. Do not let the world define your greatness. Because if you do, the rest of the world will say to be great, you need to control people. You need to dominate people. You need to lord it over them. He said, but among you, it can't be that way. He said, in order to be great in this kingdom, in this kingdom that's to come, the one that I'm bringing in to be great, you need to be a diaconos or a servant. Same idea, same place that we get this idea of deacon from. Later, it's going to be talked about in greater detail, 1 Timothy and, and Titus and other places, even in Romans and Acts, we see it kind of talked about a little bit. But he said, look, if someone is great in this kingdom, the one I'm bringing in, doesn't mean that they lord it over people. It doesn't mean that they rule people with anger and with control. No, it means they serve. Diakonos, they serve. Talk about flipping things over upside down. Like, man, no one's going to tweet about that kind of greatness. Right? That's not, that's not tweetable greatness to, for you to serve somebody behind the scenes and no one to ever praise you for it. But he says, that's the way it's going to be in my kingdom. To be great, you need to serve. You need to be a servant, a diakonos. He goes a little bit further, and he says, uh, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Now, that slave word is doulos, okay? Now, doulos, uh, one Greek word, but would have a range of meanings based on context. A lot of times we see it translated as bondservant. Okay, bondservant would mean someone that's working off a term that's not owned by someone else, but they're working off a term in order to, to be free. Like we had indentured servants for a little while in the, in the United States, well before we had slaves. 
And my, my son's been learning about this in social studies this year, and so we, we had to talk about this. Um, but indentured servants, there was a term attached to it. You will come and work for me for this number of years, and after which uh, you can go. You can do whatever you want. Bond servants, doulos, very, very similar in certain contexts. But doulos could also mean the word that we don't like, slave, owned by someone else, to do whatever the other person wants, to be property of someone else. He says, in my kingdom... The great ones will not exercise authority. They'll be servants. And then to be first, it also means you need to be a slave of all. Completely other than. Not normal. But Jesus, again, my kingdom is different. He said to be great, to be a person that's respected in my kingdom, you serve. To lead, to be first, to be a slave of all. To be a slave of all. That's crazy talk. God's kingdom is. It's crazy. It's not normal. It's not normal. It's not worldly. It's not the way that we would make it. It's completely other than. But just imagine this, like just for a moment. Imagine you have a room full of people that have been radically changed and transformed by the redeeming work of Jesus, and each one is trying to serve the other like the other owns them. Imagine what that room will look like. Number one, that room's going to be very busy with good works. <laughs> Number two, everyone's needs are going to be met, but they're not going to be met by themselves. They're going to be met by someone else. And, and imagine what it's going to look like to the world outside. It's going to look crazy. It's going to look countercultural. It's going to look counter-Facebook, counter-Instagram, counter-whatever. It's going to look completely different. Because no one's going to be singing their own praises because they're too busy taking care of someone else. Now, that's a perfect world, right? That's a perfect world where everyone's been completely transformed, and now they're 100% bought in. There's no war between flesh and spirit, and there's no tug of war and battle going on. But even on the best day, imagine if just 10% of the church is doing that. It's still going to look radical. It's still going to look crazy by comparison to the rest of the world. It's still not going to look normal. And people are going to ask serious questions. Why do you selflessly serve? That's the kingdom I live in. It's a different kingdom. Now, granted, you're probably not going to answer in those terms because people are going to look at you weird. But over the course of relationship, we get to fill in those blanks. Jesus is telling them, my kingdom, very, very different. To be great, you need to be a servant. To be a leader, you need to be a slave of all. Everyone that you're trying to lead, you serve them like they own you. Good grief. And I'll be honest. As a pastor, it probably lands a little different on me than it lands on you. But it should land on you. Because we're all called to do it, regardless of calling, regardless of gifting, regardless of, of place or position or title. We're all called to function this way to be a servant, and to be a slave of all. Imagine the world seeing that. Like, seriously. Like Acts chapter 2. Beautiful example. Beautiful example when the church just started being the church and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They didn't do it because they're amazing words. They did it because of the way they loved each other. Imagine what happens in this downtown, in this city, in this place, in this time if we are loving each other like servants and slaves. Imagine what the world sees. Imagine what the world thinks. Imagine the questions the world will ask. 
Imagine the kingdom they will see. Whoop. I don't know if that's going to stop. And then Jesus does this. So not only does he tell them, but then he says, let me show you. Let me show you. And you, you may not get it for a couple days or a couple weeks, but you will get it. Again, those prophecies sometimes, like, they weren't fully realized until they happened. Like, sometimes they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. But then when they saw it, they're like, oh, I completely get it now. Verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, boys, I'm, I'm telling you that the kingdom is different. I'm telling you that if you want to be great, you serve. I'm telling you that if you want to lead, you're a slave to all. But let me, let me tell you, even the Son of Man, and if they were a student of the Old Testament, and likely they were, they knew exactly who he was talking about. They were talking about God. He was talking about God with skin on, God walking amongst them. He said, even this person, who he was, came not to be served, but to serve. Now you, you guys, you're, you're just men, okay? Fishermen, tax collectors, uh, make a living by talking, things like that. Now great, I I'm telling you that you need to do it. And, and that's moderately understandable, but even understand, even God with skin on, same thing. Same thing. The one in the room, the one on the road, the one sitting at this place and time in creation that deserved everyone to come and fall at his feet and serve him, bring him all their stuff, bring him all their gifts, all their talents, all of everything about them. He said, even that one, me, I came to serve. And I'm the greatest among you. I'm the first among all creation. And I'll serve. And not only serve, but I'll serve to the end of myself. To die as a ransom for many, or for one to die in the place of the many. That ransom word, really interesting, uh, literally means a payment for a slave to go free. Greek culture, like if there was a slave, which he just talked about, if you want to be first, be a slave to all, when someone would pay for that slave to go free, that was the Greek word that we get our idea of ransom. He said, even the Son of Man, God would skin on, the one who came to walk among you to live a perfect life, who deserved holy, holy, holy all the time, but left that, even though he deserves to be served at length, ad nauseum, for eternity, he came to serve, and he came to be the price so that slaves could go free. He said, I've told you what it looked like. Soon I'm about to show you. Soon I'm about to show you. I, I wish I could have been there to see the light go off for the disciples when they watched from afar or when they heard, because a lot of them scattered and they couldn't watch. Peter and John, they, they probably maybe, maybe had a distant view. John, we know that he walked up to the cross, but the rest they ran because they were afraid. But I would love to have been there just to see the light go off. 
Maybe it wasn't until right before Pentecost. Maybe it wasn't right until they saw him ascending and leaving. Maybe it wasn't then, but I, I don't know, but I would have loved to have seen the light go off when they were like, oh, I get it. I get it. Radically changed. Radically transformed. No longer of this kingdom, but now of that kingdom. Now, Jesus being the example, he, he came to be the price, he came to be the ransom, but he also came to show us what it would look like. Now, granted, we, we can't die as a ransom for many. We can't do that. Like, it's not in me to do that. But Jesus already did it, so I don't have to, number one. But number two, now he just calls me to live in response, to live in response to that, to see what he's done to do my best with his spiritual guidance and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is in me, which, by the way, in John 16, 7, he said, it's better that I leave because when I leave, the helper is going to come and he's going to live in you constantly, never leaving. With the help of that, now I get to live in response. And I get to do not just my best, but his best living out through me. Um, if, if I want to be great, to serve. If I want to be first, to be a slave to all and live in a completely different kingdom. Even while we're in this one, I can live in his. What does that look like for us? Because I think that's the million-dollar question. Like, what does it look like for my mind to be oriented around his kingdom, his ways, his desires, his plans, and not mine? What does that look like? How do I do that? I mean, I think there are some universals, but for the most part, it's, it's going to vary as much as we do. But it's all going to be informed by the same couple of things. Number one, primary information comes from Scripture. Holy Spirit working through that. And then the community of believers speaking into that as well. Scripture, Holy Spirit, each other. If we have those three things and we're pursuing those three things diligently, sacrificially, with the understanding that we need them, God will speak. And he will teach us what it looks like to live in his kingdom. He will teach us what it looks like to be great. He will teach us what it looks like to serve like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to lead like Jesus. And in each of our little spheres of influence, we'll get to do that. And the world will get to watch. And, and I'm, I'm convicted of this. The world has seen so many inauthentic Christ followers who are about their kingdom but sticking Jesus' stamp on it. When they see authentic Christ followers who aren't trying to put their stamp on anything but understand they've been stamped by Christ, when they see that, the world's going to respond very differently. The world's going to respond very differently. Because let's be honest, if we're loving like Jesus and we're living like Jesus, who's going to disagree with that? Like who's going to look at that and say, that's horrible? That's disgusting. Who's going to do that? No one. Because Jesus loved to the end of himself. He loved sacrificially. He loved wholeheartedly. He died as a ransom for many. If we're loving like that, serving like that, leading like that, the world will see and the world will be like, wow, that's, I don't necessarily understand how you got there. And I don't know that I agree, but I love the result. Can you tell me more? Well, yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> I mean, our best apologetic ever is going to be living like Jesus. Living like Jesus.
I do love the question of what would it look like if the kingdom was lived out fully here in our city? Like, what would that look like? Like, what would it look like if you just took 12 people, 12 in this city, lived out kingdom expression? Lived it out. Not just did it, but like lived it out. Were about it. Were that, those people citizens of God's kingdom fully bought in? What would happen if, if just 12 people did it? What would happen if 150 did it? I want to see it. I just want to see it. Hmm. Let me pray. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, God, for Jesus and his words and his example. Thank you, God, that he could have responded in so many ways. But he did it as a shepherd who cared about his sheep brought them back to a place of understanding, consistently led them and guide them, at times rebuked them lovingly, but either way, God, he did it uh, in such a way that he knew that he could leave them to continue the mission that he started. God, I pray we look to that Jesus. I pray we dwell on that Jesus. I pray, God, we trust in that Jesus to make us right with, with you uh, for eternity. And God, that you seal us with your Holy Spirit and equip us and enable us uh, to live like kingdom people for you in this city uh, so that others may know. And God, when it comes time to answer questions, I pray, God, that you would uh, be as faithful as you say that you will be to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that you've commanded us. And lo, you will be with us always. God, we trust in the fact that when the questions come, you will be with us to guide us in answering those questions, to bring men and women to yourself into the kingdom out of this world. God, I pray we could live like kingdom people. And God, I pray that your name could be made great in this city, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, for your glory. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, a couple of uh, quick announcements. Thank you guys for being here, by the way. Um, we have to be out a little bit quicker over there with the kids' area. So if you could, if you're parents and you have children over there, if you could go get them quickly and bring them out. There's another event that needs to set up next door today, and we're trying to, to take care of our stuff but also serve them as well. And so if you have kids, go and get them quickly. If you can stick around and help tear down the pipe and drape jungle that we set up every week, we need to have it done in record time. Uh, Kip and Zach Larrabee are back there. They will tell you exactly what needs to happen. They'll tell you what to take down, where to hang it, do all of those things. Uh, go and do that for us if you could very, very quickly. Also, Origins 101 is right after we get done today. Um, that's kind of information about who we are, why we exist. You've probably heard a lot about that over the past two weeks, but you're going to